Romans chapter 5, and we'll study tonight the first two verses. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. As we begin chapter 5, let's review where Paul has taken us so far. The charts that's in front of you will help you do that. Feel free and feel encouraged to take a few notes on that chart. I think it might help you. Um, I know that all haven't been here during the entire study of Romans. We began, I think, about six months ago. But even if you have, um, sometimes in a study like this, which takes a little bit longer than some of the other studies that we've had, we can lose track of the flow of the arguments through the book, and that's the last thing that I want to happen. I want us to remember where Paul's going with this, and it's very important that we periodically remind ourselves. Uh, after an extended introduction, you can see in your chart there, uh, in chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, Paul introduces the concept of justification by explaining the need for it. In chapter 1, verse 18 through 3, 20. And three categories of persons are mentioned there. Do you remember what the three categories were? The first one, the immoral person. The immoralist who rejected the revelation of God from creation moved into idolatry, which led to immorality, hence that's where we're getting the title for that person, and finally animosity toward God. The second person that was mentioned by Paul in that section was the moralist. The moralist is one who, who looks down on the immoralist, saying, in effect, I have a right standing before God because I'm better than him. But even though he judges the immoralist, the reality is that he practices the same things. must have been a shock for that person to hear that from the, from the lips or the pen of the Apostle Paul. He's just as guilty as the immoralist and just as in need of justification. The third person that Paul mentions specifically is the... The Jew, that's correct, who was in a position of privilege uh, because he possessed the law and also the rituals from the law. But he didn't follow the law, even though he possessed it. He didn't take advantage of the advantages that he had. He's just as in need of justification as the immoralist and the moralist. So finally, in chapter 3, verse 9 through chapter 20, it is concluded that all are under the condemnation of sin and all have a need for a right standing before God. In chapter 3, verse 21, we see a shift in subjects from the apostle. Paul moves from the discussion for the need for justification to an explanation of what justification is. In chapter 3, verse 21 through 31, the, the, the passage that Martin Luther called probably the central scripture in all of the Bible, the very central passage of the Bible, and he makes a good argument for that. In that particular section, Paul explains that one has a right standing before God on the basis of grace through faith. And then justification by grace through faith is illustrated in chapter 4 by the life of Abraham, a man who was respected by Jew and by Gentile alike, and to a lesser extent by the life of David, who was blessed, according to Romans chapter 4, because righteousness was reckoned to him apart from works. And also he was blessed because God did not impute his sin to him. So primary illustration in chapter 4 is Abraham. Secondary illustration in chapter 4, David. Those are two things that I would put down in that section. Uh, what is it in terms of 
of justification. So justification is first explained in that section, then it's illustrated, and now in chapter 5 we begin a study on the expectation, or perhaps you might want to say the certainty of justification. In other words, Paul may be asked, well, how long is this justification going to last? Okay, I was justified by grace through faith. Great. How long does it last? Is it affected by what I do? Does it hold up under all the circumstances of life? These are questions people have out there. These are important questions that people have. These are not peripheral issues within theology. These are central issues in theology because it goes to how one lives. Recently someone asked me, is the doctrine of eternal uh, eternal security really a, an important doctrine? Is it a core doctrine is it, or is it one that maybe we could have a little flexibility with? No, it's core. Because someone who believes in eternal security will live with a certain hope that, that one who does not believe in, in eternal security can't have. You see, if someone believes that they could sin right before going to bed tonight and lose their salvation and wake up if they would die tonight in hell, they're going to live their life with a different level of comfort than one who would know dogmatically, if I was to die tonight, I have trusted Jesus Christ, I am going to go to heaven. Yes, it's a central truth, and Paul will ex begin the explanation of that here, and actually he'll explain it throughout the book of Romans. It is a very important subject. Uh, someone might say, well, if I sin, do I lose justification, and do I incur the wrath of God? Something that's as wonderful as justification we don't want to lose that. You know, I don't ever again want to be on the wrong side of God. Because Paul's going to tell us in this section that there was a time when you were on the wrong side of God. If you want to say, you are on God's bad side, if you'd like to put it that way. In fact, Paul is so strong to say, before we came to Christ by grace through faith, we were enemies of God. Not just neutral. And for us to ever appreciate grace, here's where the rubber's going to start to meet the road. In the book of, of Romans, we've got to understand that before we were justified, we weren't just nobody to God. We were his enemies. But in spite of that, he still sent his son to die as a substitute for us. Now, doesn't that provide some comfort right there? Well, Paul's going to give us even more than that. Paul will explain that even if I sin, I retain my right standing before him and will not face his wrath. The term wrath of God in the scriptures is almost universally ex uh, reserved for the unbeliever. The, the believer does not incur the wrath of God. That's a done thing for the believer. Now, the unbeliever will incur the wrath of God. So, in answer to the question, will this justification survive the life that we live now? Paul's going to answer in two ways. In verses 1 through 5, he answers negatively. He says, even though I experience tribulation now, it is designed to strengthen me, not destroy me. And then in verses 6 through 11, Paul answers the question, will this justification survive this life? He answers it positively. We were justified when we were sinners, when we were enemies with God. Now that we're family, he will keep us justified. There's an assignment that I'd like for you to do. I don't panic, <laughs> and I know it's a bit strange sometimes, but I'm going to ask you to do an assignment. I'd like for you in the next week, between now and the time that we meet next, to take the first 11 verses of Romans chapter 5 
It's not, there aren't, it doesn't take very long to read that. It would take, matter of fact, just a few seconds, perhaps a minute, if you read it carefully, thoughtfully and carefully, observing what you see in the text. And as you read through those verses, if I were you, I would read it casually the first day, a little more thoughtfully the second day, maybe take a little bit more time the third day. But by the fourth or the fifth day, I'd like for you to start observing five key theological terms that come up in verses 1 through 11. Five key theological terms. Now, you may come up with six. If you do, that's fantastic. But I came up with five primary key terms. And the way that I'm calling it a key term in this, in this passage is Paul's going to use the term more than once. And here's a clue as to what the terms are going to be. Think Paul. Think terms that, you, knowing the Apostle Paul, that you know are near and dear to him. Faith's one of them. I won't give you the rest. But faith's one that I came up with. Now, that's as much of a clue as I'm going to give you. Come up with those five terms. And then, as you read through the passage, as you read through the passage, I would like for you to come to a conclusion on your own through the help of the Holy Spirit uh, in the teaching ministry as you study this. I'd like for you to, to, to develop an opinion as to which of those five concepts, which of those five is the ultimate point Paul is really trying to drive home. And then in a brief time, when we start next time, I'll get some of your feedback on that. I'd be interested to see if your feedback is going to be the same thing that I came up with. I suspect that it will. Five terms... Five terms, all very Pauline issues. You may come up with more. That's fine. But I, you, you'll, you'll be able to have at least five. I assure you that. And I've given you one already. And then which of those five do you think is his primary driving point? And then in order to do that, you're going to have to synthesize it and come up with it in your mind, well, why would I pick that one over the rest of them? So it um, should be a good exercise for you. Now let's read along those first 11 verses for the first time, at least maybe the first time Recently, the reason I'm asking you to do that, it, it's dawned upon me that I've spent some time in the text. You know, and I come in and I've spent all week, all year, whatever, in this particular text. I'm fairly familiar with it. This may be the first time you've even looked at Romans chapter 5 in, in a week, a month, a year, or, or maybe several years. I, I know that. You've got other things on your plate to do. So what I'd like for you to do is, is take a look at this extremely important passage of Scripture. And before you ever come next time, Understand these five concepts, maybe six, if there's a possibility. See which one, in your view, is the driving issue behind that, because I just bet you, if you do that, not only will you come with those concepts, you might also come with a question or two that you might have developed from the text. And if that's the case, you can listen and see if that question was answered in the Bible study that we do next Wednesday. And if it wasn't answered, I'll sit right here, and we'll talk about it after the study's over. Fair enough? Because it's my job not just to teach you, but it's my job to encourage you to learn. Because any of those that are teachers, several in the room, will tell you it's one thing to teach, but it's another for to have your students learn. And my, the job hasn't been finished unless there's a learning process that goes on. And by learning, I'm not talking about just learning it academically. When we talk about learning and knowing God, it implies an, a, an application to life. And this is the kind of exercise that will help you to make that link between knowing the Word and then applying it for your life. If you've had to dig out some of it for yourself, then you'll go through the mental process of how this might actually work in this situation. So try it. It won't hurt you. I think you'll actually get really pumped about doing that. Now, read along with me. Therefore, having been justified by faith, 
Matter of fact, as we read through it, you might start picking out your own words. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exalt in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. Let me stop right there. Does that sound familiar with something we've studied in the past? Sounds a lot like James, doesn't it? Sounds a lot like the first chapter of James. Anyway, verse 4 again. And perseverance, proven character, proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's you and me, by the way. We were the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more, having been just, much more then, having been now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. In verse 10, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received the reconciliation. As you do your own study in this, remember, there's two sections to this. The first five verses, he answers this question, will, just, will this justification survive this life? He answers it negatively. The second, uh, the second section, verses 6 through 11, he answers the question positively. We were justified when we were sinners, when we were his enemies. Now that we're his family, he's going to keep us justified. That might help you in picking out some key terms. The first verse, therefore... And the therefore, the reason that's there, and anytime you see a chapter begin with that, you've got to go back to the first four chapters, and that's the reason I gave you that chart tonight. I want you to see where we are. Based upon what I've taught you up till now, the Apostle Paul says, therefore, therefore, having been justified by faith. So Paul says in this first phrase, in light of what I've just told you about justification, how it's Everyone has a need for it, and then there's an illustration of it that's based upon, by, the, by means of grace, through faith. Based upon what that, based upon what I've taught you, we have peace with God. You need to understand that we have peace with God. Now, there's, there's an interesting textual problem here. And ordinarily, I don't cover these types of things. These are things that we study in our office and we come present the fruits of the study to you. But tonight I thought you might like to hear about this one because it does affect the way some of the Bibles that you maybe have in front of you are translated. There's a Greek verb, echo, which means I have. E-C-H-O. That's what it looks like. Echo. Now, one form of that verb is E-C-H-O-M-E-N. And that means... We have. And you might see, this is an E-C-H-O-M-E-N. You see that? Now, that word means we have. And it's making a statement. We call that an indicative verb. And it's pronounced echomen. Now, there's another Greek word from the same root. 
that's pronounced echomen. Exactly the same. In, in common speech, there's an English example of it. If I was to say, Dear John, um, I went to the store today and, and bought a loaf of bread. The word deer, would you, would you think that that was a four-legged animal that runs in the forest? No, automatically, because you speak English and you know that that's the way the term's normally used, you would, you would spell it a different way, correct? Well, other languages do the same thing. So these two words were pronounced exactly the same way. But the meaning of the second one, and you can see the, the one letter that's different. You see this right here? That right there? This is called an Omicron. That's called an Omega, but they're both an O. I guess we could maybe simplify by saying one's like a long O and one's a short O. But at the time of the New Testament, these two letters were pronounced the same. So hence, some of the Bibles, or some, let me put this way, some ancient manuscripts have this reading in it which would read like the New American Standard does. Therefore, having been justified by, by faith, we have peace. It's an indicative statement. Okay? Other manuscripts have echomen. It sounds like the same word, but it's actually different, and it would read a bit differently. Uh, something like, uh, let us have peace. Uh, therefore, having been justified by faith, let us have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, it, would, it would signify something like the enjoyment of the peace that is ours because of our justification. Let us enjoy that reconciliation. Let us enjoy that justification that we have. Here's the interesting thing. Uh, there are spiritual superstars, maybe I could use that term to, to put it into modern parlance. There are people that line up on both sides of this. Make it very, very difficult to make the choice if you're just looking at what other people think. Because in one sense, perhaps the best manuscripts have this reading. And I, I would bet you that none of your Bibles read that. But, but perhaps the best manuscripts have this. And we call that external evidence. I'm not trying to make you a textual critic tonight, but I'm just trying to show you why things may read differently. But internal evidence, the flow of Paul's argument, leans toward this reading. The indicative. It's a statement. You have this. You, you have been justified by faith. You have peace with God. Now, that's... Uh, I, I certainly believe that in the background of Paul's thinking, the idea of this bottom word, echomen, which is a subjective peace or feeling of contentment because of our justification, that ought to mark who we are. But I think a better understanding is what most of your Bibles have translated. And that is that because of our justification, we have an objective peace with God instead of being at war with God. So that's what the text is likely attempting to say, although Paul is certainly implying the other as well. Now, you may wonder, how could that happen? Well, in the transmission of the text, oftentimes it was verbal. And so one scribe would, would recite the text to another scribe who was writing. And you see, as, as they would go through it, there would be uh, perhaps the possibility of making an error, in the, not in the original. We're, not talking about the, we're talking about in the transmission of the text over the centuries, as the, as the Bible was written out in the original languages. They would come to this word, echomen, and there may not have been a clarification, or the, the scribe that was writing it down didn't pick that up, or may have been out of fellowship at the time they were writing it down, the Spirit wasn't leading them, and you have an error in transmission. 
it doesn't mean that that the Bible is uh, errant. It doesn't mean that there are mistakes in the Bible. We're talking about a transmission error from one manuscript to the next. That's why it's very important when we talk about inerrancy. The, the scriptures are inerrant in the autograph. Not necessarily, Any particular copy of the scripture is not necessarily without an error. And so it's about 50-50. About half the manuscripts, it looks like, have this, but the better ones. But it looks like the flow of the argument really fits this indicative. It reminds me, I was in the Dallas Seminary one time, and in my first semester, first semester, and I had uh, the chairman of the theology department, Lanier Burns, for, for one of my classes, and he was explaining some things about uh, textual criticism to the class, and like some of you did, they, we got kind of glassy-eyed, and, and then uh, he also mentioned something about canonicity, and then he, got him, he, he crossed them up at one point. And so being the first semester student that I was, I raised my hand, and uh, I explained to the, the chairman of the theology department at Dallas Seminary the difference between canonicity and textual criticism. Because he is the kind man that he is, he let it go. And he said, oh, okay, well, I, I see that. I appreciate that, uh, Bruce. Then we happened to be going to lunch that day, and, and uh, we kept our lunch appointment. We sat down at the table, and, and uh, Dr. Burns just kind of worked into the conversation that he was headed to New Orleans that weekend for like the American Society of Textual Critics meeting uh, of which he was one of their presiding officers. And I looked at him and he said, yeah, I, I know about textual criticism. I, I know the difference between the two. So that's a, it's an exciting field, but what textual critics do is they take all these ancient manuscripts and study them, I mean, just comb over them and then attempt to come up with what the text actually says. And I see Will just walked in. His mentor, Daniel Wa Dan Wallace, is one of the leading textual critics in the world today, wouldn't you say? I mean, that's fair. Um, so anyway, that's, this is an example of that. We don't go over it very often, but at least you see one of them uh, now. Another word that's very important in this first verse is the word peace. It's, it's a very common Greek word, irene, which at its basic core means a set of favorable circumstances involving peace and tranquility, or it's the absence of war. If, if, if at one time we were God's enemies, and you could really say we were at war with him, he was at war with us, that's not the, that's not the kind of enemy, we don't want somebody like God on the other side. I would rather have the Iraqis on the other side, at least they're beatable. God's not beatable, and it's a bad position to be in, and and it's a depressing position because the condition in which we found ourselves before the Lord justified us wasn't a pleasant one. Listen to these seven characteristics. First, God had revealed his wrath against us. That's in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. We stored up wrath for the day of wrath. We saw that in Romans 2, 5, and also in chapter 3, verses 5 through 7. Third, God had given us up to self-destruct. That's Romans 1, 24, 26, and 28. Uh, we were worthy of the second death in Romans 1.32. We were inexcusable in Romans 2.1. Romans 3.9.23 and 5.8 tell us that we were all under sin. And Romans 3.19 says we were guilty in the eyes of the divine courtroom. That's not a pleasant place to be. And these seven points make it clear that we were the enemies of God. And Paul comes right out and says that in chapter 5. Verse 10, There's, there existed a state of hostility, not because God wanted it that way, but because man pursued his own rebellious way. 
This is the position that we were in. And as I said a moment ago, if we're to really understand and appreciate where we are now, key word, appreciate. If we're to appreciate grace, we've got to understand that we were at one time enemies of God himself. Prior to the moment of justification, man was hostile toward God. But now, after justification, a truce is declared so that peace exists. God and believers are reconciled. We're no longer enemies. Where there had been war, there is now a state of peace, regardless of how we may feel about it. Now, there may be some days when you don't feel like you're at peace with God, but you are positionally. And Paul wants to make sure that we understand that. At the very heart of God's justification is love graciously poured out. It's the very nature of God's love to replace wrath with peace and to replace hostility with friendship as a magnificent exercise of his perfect justice and grace toward man. Before we leave the subject, let me just say a word about reconciliation because it will come up a bit later in the passage as perhaps one of the major concepts that Paul's pronouncing in verses 1 through 11. But there are two sides to reconciliation. There's an objective side, which, which is essentially the potential which Christ accomplished for all mankind. There's a sense in which Christ died for all and made all savable. And that's the, uh, the objective side, what theologians call the objective side of reconciliation. There's a subjective side of reconciliation where we actually become reconciled to God. So in a, in a sense, if you want to call it a two-step process, that's fine. But Christ died to make salvation available to all. He died to make rec- reconciliation available to all. And then there's a, there, that's called the objective side, theologically. Then there's a subjective side, and that means that you've accepted that. So you enjoy reconciliation. It's real important to always keep in mind one final thought about reconciliation, and that is that God is not reconciled to us. I know it's a, we're getting fine with the words here, but God is not reconciled to us. We are reconciled to him. He didn't do anything for which he needed reconciliation. We are the ones. So the movement is not with God. We're the ones that turned and walked away. We're the ones that are reconciled back. Okay, Very important. Otherwise, if you get that backwards, unintentionally, it's very offensive to the holiness and the integrity of God. We are reconciled to him. The scriptures never talk about him being reconciled to us. Very, very important. Listen to Paul in Colossians 1, 20 and 21. It was God's purpose through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God, and we were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. So the personal nature of our peace with God comes out of the preposition that includes the idea of contact. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God, watch the next phrase, through our Lord Jesus Christ, whom, through whom we have also gained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. It was Christ's substitutionary death which brought about reconciliation. We sinned. 
because God is a just and holy God, a price had to be paid before we could be reconciled to God. Sometimes the question comes up, I'm talking about in, in real life situations. Someone has committed a criminal act. Perhaps the criminal act is against you. And it, and it happened, even recently, I believe it was yesterday here in the state of Texas. A man's father was murdered. The murderer was on death row. The son of the murdered man publicly asks for forgiveness for the murderer and asks if the sentence could be commuted and, and switched into a life sentence. As far as I know, it wasn't, correct? I mean, the man was executed. I believe, believe he was. But in, in listening to the terminology that the, that the very gracious man, the gracious son did use, you know, he said, I can forgive him. Why can't everybody else? The reason is because under the laws of the state of Texas, there has to be a price paid for that murder that was committed. Can we forgive him? Yes, you certainly can. Can we have grace toward him? Watch it. Because what I, what I hear sometimes, because what I'm, what I'm driving at, there has to be a price paid before grace can be administered. I was recently asked about a situation just like this that I won't, won't give the details of because it involves some people actually associated with the ministry, but, but a, a particular person was wronged and their family was wronged in a criminal way. And they are, they have, are having pressure put upon them to drop the criminal charges and show grace to that person. And here's where we have to be careful. They can love that person, because this was a very heinous crime. They can love the person. They can forgive the person. But technically speaking, before grace can be shown, a price has to be paid. And here's the, So don't misspeak that way. Don't throw somebody into a guilt complex because they're, they're following the laws of the land and justice is being administered by the, the legally ordained and delegated authorities from God. It doesn't mean that you're not a gracious person. It doesn't mean that you're not a loving person. But you can, justice can be exercised and the punishment can be given out while at the same time you can forgive them. But be careful how we use the word grace. Be careful. Because what happens is we take these situations and then we, then we turn around and superimpose them back on the Bible. And we think, well, God could have reconciled us without the death of his son. All he had to do was just say, hey, it's okay. It's all right. Come on back. No, he couldn't. Before he could say, it's okay, come on back, there was a price, a terrible price that had to be paid. Do you see why I'm saying this is, a, this is a chapter that might change your life, the way you really look at things? If you realize that before we could be reconciled, before we could no longer be called God's enemies, Christ's son had to die. That's going to come up in verse 8. He, he died as a substitute for us while we were his enemies. I hope that would change the way that we walk on a daily basis, the way that we live our lives on a daily basis. We should be so much more humble if we know that somebody had to die in order for that reconciliation to occur. It's a wonderful word, this, this idea of peace with God. It's more than just a feeling. It's a position. So Christ's substitutionary death brought about reconciliation. 
It was through the person and work of the Savior, appropriated by faith, that access into this state of grace, that is, the state of justification, has been effected. One more thing. This state of grace also implies confident access to the Father and to his throne of grace. People sometimes ask me, can unbelievers pray? Sure. Sure they can pray. It's doubtful how much God answers. There are some illustrations in the Bible where God appears to answer, possibly answer the prayers of unbelievers that aren't for salvation. I think back in Jonah, you know, those men prayed, but, but and they were definitely pagans about uh, some things. But, but generally speaking, no, you don't have access to God the Father. You're his enemy. You don't have access except through reconciliation and then through his Son. So these are great, incredible privileges. Also notice that it is our Lord Jesus Christ our Lord Jesus Christ, who having paid his people's debt, introduces us to the Father. It is, it is he who not only makes intercession for us, but even more meaningfully, ever lives to make intercession for us. That's Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace, in which we stand. And finally, at the end of verse 2, and we exult in hope, of the glory of God. We exult. The glory of God here refers to the marvelous salvation that God has in store for those who place their trust in Him. What Paul is really saying is that we don't like certain self-righteous people brag about our own accomplishments, but we place our confidence in God. In Him we greatly rejoice. I hope that if you haven't already, soon you would grow to the place in your spiritual life where you would exalt, where you would rejoice in the hope of glory in God. I can't see. It is beyond me how anybody could live in this world, in this culture, without hope. And I'm not talking about hope in the sense of the English word, maybe it's going to happen, maybe it's not. I'm talking about hope in the sense of confident expectation that that which God has promised, he is capable of bringing to pass. And he's promised us, flat out promised us, that if we'll trust his son, we'll spend eternity with him. That's confident expectation. That's the kind of expectation Paul had when he was being let out to be executed. You know what he said shortly before that? He said, I know in whom I have believed. He didn't have faith in faith. The reason he had confidence as he went out into that field and was stripped down to the waist and bent over a, a probably a, a waist-high pillar as the executioner drew a sword out, at least at the, we believe that at the time of Nero they were executed with swords and not axes. The reason he could confidently go there is he knew in whom he had believed. So he had confident expectation that as he bowed his head and looked at that executioner and then bowed his head down toward the ground to be uh, executed, the next face he would see would be that of the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope that's the kind of hope that you have when you face the dying process, because we're all going to face that, short of the rapture of the church. All of us are going to face that. And, I, and, I, and I, I really pray that as you go through that process, that's what you'll be focused upon. That once I take my final breath here, the first face I'll see in heaven as I breathe celestial air is the face of the one who sought me and saved me and keeps me by his grace. 
on a daily basis. As the hymn writer says, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Pete, could I ask you to close us in prayer tonight? Would you do that?